0: You're listening
1: to Nightlight. Hi, and welcome to a special Thanksgiving Day edition of Nightlight. And a very happy Thanksgiving to all of you who celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday, which will mainly be our American audience, of which we have many. But for those of us who are not Americans, not sure what the Thanksgiving holiday is all about... I've invited Howard Storm back onto the program to share the story of the first Thanksgiving. Welcome back to Nightlight, Howard. Once again, the show is yours.
0: We have a guest tonight on Nightlight.
2: The background of all this has to do with what some people might categorize as politics. You know that the Pilgrims were separatists. They were being persecuted by the Church of England. Literally jailed and killed for doing unlawful things like getting the Bible in the English language and having Bible studies and having uh, prayer meetings um, unauthorized by the Church of England, and that's why they had to escape England. Right. Um, you know, I don't give I don't have any axe to grind against England. I love England. I've been there several times. Um, you know, I mean, we Americans. You know, wrongly call. Our, we think we're English, and I'm not just talking about the language. You, you know, more Americans are of German descent than of English descent. Really? And then a large portion of our population is from uh, South America. Another large portion is from Africa.
1: And a lot came from Italy, right?
2: We got lots of Italians. um you know, Poles. You, I mean, we've got people from all over the world. You know. I live in the middle of the country and there's lots of people from India and Pakistan. And I mean, you know, it's, it's a, we call it a melting pot. It is truly a melting pot. I mean, anyways, the, the point is, is that um, they came over as um, refugees in fear for their lives. You know, they wanted to establish an, a new order, a new world um, based on their religious faith. And they were deeply religious people, um, Calvinists. They wanted to get away from the control of England and the Church of England. And I, if I don't mention those things, I can't really speak the truth about why they were refugees.
1: No, just tell how it happened. I mean, I'm from England, but I'm not patriotic.
2: You're not an Anglophile?
1: <laughs> no. No, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm a kingdomite.
2: Okay. Well, I, I just wanted to clear that with you because I didn't want to um, offend you. Um, you know part of um, why I think this is so relevant is there's millions of people in the world today that are refugees all over the world, you know, for all kinds of reasons. I don't want to go into that, but I want to talk about these pilgrims suffered everything that today's refugees suffered.
1: Howard, who chronicled this history? Who wrote it down so that we could have this information?
2: Well, yeah, the interesting thing is William Brewster, who was the um, second governor of the colony and a pretty good guy wrote a book about all this stuff. And there are a couple other chronicles. So um, we actually have wonderfully firsthand accounts. You know, it's pretty amazing because, you know, for so much of history, uh, we don't have firsthand accounts. As a matter of fact, a lot of our history was written hundreds of years after the event, you know, but in this case, we do um, have firsthand accounts of what happened and, um, since they were devoutly religious people, one would uh, ascribe to them honesty in their accounts. Right. Anyhow, I just want to say every year of my life growing up in school, you know, school was dismissed at Christmas and Easter, you know, like we had uh, a couple weeks off at Christmas time and a week or more off at Easter time. But Thanksgiving, we celebrated Thanksgiving in school, meaning we all dressed up like pilgrims or Indians and and we reenacted the whole thing. And I mean, if you, if you want to understand me, think of a little boy, you know, pride and joy, like with his little paper, you know, pilgrim hat and, you know, his little wooden um, gun and or dressed as an Indian with feathers in his hair and um, reenacting the whole Thanksgiving. I mean, this was like huge. This was our big childhood celebration. And then of course, on Thanksgiving day, gigantic family feast with all the relatives, you I mean, we're typical to have 16, 18 people at our house. And my mother cooked for days for that. And everybody tried to get along, <laughs> tried. My mother would make all of her specialities: pecan rolls and steamed pudding, of course, with turkey and gravy and, you know, six different kinds of vegetables, et cetera. Um, so it was huge. And then in the tradition of the pilgrims, on Thursday afternoon, there was always the big Rival football game of the year. Nightlight. You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight,
0: shining God's love light to the world.
1: And you're listening to a special Thanksgiving Day edition of Nightlight, and speaking to us over Zoom from his home in rural Kentucky, our guest once again is Howard Storm, author of Descent into Death A Second Chance at Life. Great to have you back so soon on the show, Howard, this time not talking about heaven and hell, but sharing with us the story of how the first Thanksgiving came about.
2: What I'm going to be talking about is um, a harvest festival that occurred in 1621. Uh, Harvest festivals were very common in those days, and probably throughout the world, many people still have harvest festivals today. You know, in... um, seasonal climates where you, know, you have winters where you don't grow anything, you don't harvest anything. You've got to make preparations um, you know, in the spring for planting and then uh, in the fall for harvesting. And uh, that's gonna be your survival through those um, bleak months of winter where um, the only food you're gonna eat is whatever you store it up, you up know, from your harvest. So talking about a harvest festival, which came to be known as the first Thanksgiving. Harvest festivals were a tradition um, in those days and still celebrated by many people today. This particular group of people called Pilgrims, which means people seeking their own religious tradition, you know, usually under oppression. That's how they got the name Pilgrim. I mean, they didn't really call themselves Pilgrims, but we've later identified them as Pilgrims. They came from England because the Calvinist faith was pervading England. Calvinist literature from, this is, we're talking about primarily uh, Switzerland, from the Zwinglian tradition, what we now refer to as the Reformed tradition, was seeping into England and people were reading it heavily. And most importantly, in continental Europe, like, for example, in the Netherlands and in Switzerland, they were doing something illegal. They were publishing the Bible in the English language instead of in Latin that was against the law. And if you were found in England with a English language Bible, you would go to prison. And when I'm talking about prison, I'm talking about feudal prisons, where there's a very good likelihood you would die from disease. And it might take you six years before your trial began, stuff like that. I mean, going going to prison could very well be a death sentence, a long, slow death sentence. So, you know, no small thing um, to be you know, cut it off for prison for owning a English language Bible or for owning Calvinist literature, whatever. There were two, two things going on at this time. There was the Lutheran Reformation and the Calvinist Revelation. And they, and they were um, not at all hostile to each other, but they're two separate traditions. And this is a Calvinist, um, which resulted in primarily in Puritanism, but they were not wanting to separate from the English church. They wanted to reform the English church, which the English church was, which was an arm of the the crown, did not want reformation particularly. So it was a difficult period. Lots of these separatists were being arrested and being hauled off to prison for um, this illegal activity, possessing English-language Bibles, having um, illegal meetings where they did things like horrible illegal things like studying the Bible and discussing doctrine. What happened was when they read the Bible, and we're talking um, primarily about the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles by Paul and Peter and James and John, of course, they saw a huge disparity between the church, the early church of Jesus Christ, as described in the Bible, and what they were experiencing under the Church of England, which was um, really um, very much like the medieval. Roman Catholic Church, lots of rules, lots of legalities, you know, and um, not relating to the people at all. You know, the people were just, just there to be, um, keep your mouth shut and be obedient basically. And these people were taking their faith and their relationship with Jesus Christ way too seriously for the establishment. You know, they were quite enthusiastic. So anyways, they made the decision that they couldn't survive in England literally So they became refugees and they went to Holland to Leiden in 1607 and tried to make make a go of it in Holland. But the problem was, is that because they didn't speak Dutch, it was hard for them to get good employment. And many of the people were very poor in Leiden and they made the decision in Leiden that Holland was not the place for them. They didn't have anything against the Dutch and they weren't being persecuted against the Dutch. But... um, they didn't want to become Dutchmen. They didn't want to lose their identity as um, Englishmen. So they made the decision to go to the New World. Um, so uh, some of their wealthier sponsors in England bought them two boats, uh, the Mayflower and the Speedwell. These ocean-going vehicles, by our standards, were tiny and awful. I've They've built a reproduction of the Mayflower, and I've been on it a couple of times, and it's like when you understand that there were 120 passengers and 36 crew on the Mayflower. It's like, seriously? I mean, it really looked like, you know, it would be a ship built for 40 people, maybe 50 at the most, but I mean, they were packed in onto these two ships. The Speedwell, which had been built in 1577 and was now 53 years old when they bought it, the average life expectancy of a wooden-held ship was 20 years because a wooden-held ship would – rot. Being in the ocean, you know, for 20 years, it would begin to rot. This was a 53-year-old boat and very small. And so anyways, off they sailed. They went from Leyden to Plymouth, England. And then from Plymouth, they went out into the Atlantic Ocean. They didn't get very far when the speedwell began to um, flood. You know, it, it, it was rotten. I mean, the, the planks were rotten, so they had to turn back, go back to Plymouth, abandon the speed wells. Um, Some of the people jumped on the Mayflower, and some of the people said, "No, this is not going well. We're going back to we're going back to Leyden." A sad part of the story was these people were led by a pastor by the name of Robinson, and uh, he wanted to go with the Pilgrims on that first voyage. Their pastor did, but there was a group that wanted to stay, and a large group that stayed in Leyden said. You go there first, get settled, and we'll come, we'll come a few years later after you get things you know, organized, see how it goes. They demanded that Robinson, their pastor, stay with them. So he did not get to go. And unfortunately, before he was able to make the journey with the next group, he um, died. But he was a very important figure in all this, Pastor Robinson. Anyhow, off they went. Had no idea what to expect. I mean, what they knew about the new world, you could fit in a thimble. They didn't know anything. They had heard reports that the Indians were hostile and that they killed settlers, which, in fact, they had done to a group that had settled in Virginia, in Jamestown. They wiped out that group of English settlers, you know, a, a decade earlier, um, and reports had gone back of that. They were afraid of the Spaniards who claimed the whole new world as their own and that when the Spanish would go up the coast of what's now North America and looking for illegal colonies of invaders and wiped them out. It all belonged to Spain. They didn't want Englishmen or Dutchmen in there. So they're off on a big adventure. Their trip across the Atlantic was 65 days, cramped up. They basically were running out of provisions. There was scurvy and disease and all kinds of things happening on the ship. And they landed on this peninsula that juts out into the Atlantic Ocean called Cape Cod, which is where, in fact, I grew up beautiful place. They found some um, Indian settlements, most of which the Indians had run away because they saw these strange people with muskets landing and then had some really bad experiences with Europeans landing on their shore. The Europeans would come ashore and kill the Indians and take their stuff. So when the Indians saw these pilgrims snooping around looking for a settlement site, they, they'd run off. So that what the people, these pilgrims did was they went in and um, took all the food they could find out of the Indian settlements and took it back to the ship to feed their people. Well, of course, they're starving, so I'm like, you know, give them a break. You know, they needed the corn and the beans. There are a couple of uh, hostile incidences between them and the um, Indians. No one was killed or anything, but they fired their guns, which, of course, scared the Indians off. And uh, so they didn't think Cape Cod looked like a pretty appropriate place. Also, it's like the soil is mostly sandy and it's like windswept at that time. So They were scouting around for a place, sending out boats, looking for a place, and they found um, a beautiful harbor on the coast of Massachusetts, and um, they eventually named it Plymouth, after the place where their voyage had originated from. They named it after Plymouth, England, and they found a deserted Indian village, and in that deserted Indian Indian village, they found these huge stores uh, buried underground, these big stores of corn. It was like oh boy, there were actual, there were some Indian houses still intact and there was corn and it was a beautiful harbor and the harbor was full of fish. And it was like, home, we found our home, yay! And so that's uh, the beginning of the um, what's called the Plymouth Colony. And um, if you go there, there's a reproduction of that whole colony, which is very worthwhile visit with people called reenactors who will tell you the whole story and give you a I mean, the, the reenactors pretend to be the pilgrims, so you can meet, you know, uh, William Brewster, and you can meet Squanto, Dini. I mean, you can meet all the characters, in the, in the, and, and they all take their roles very seriously. It's lots of fun. So if you're ever in Plymouth, Massachusetts, go to the Plymouth Plantation, and you can uh, experience the whole thing. Anyhow, they landed in the mid of winter. Now, I grew up in New England. Coastal New England gets the cold, wet air from the sea coming inland, and the cold, cold, cold air blowing down from Canada, and they meet on the coast of New England. It was not unusual to have a snowstorm three feet feet thick. And, of course, I'm talking about, you know, sub-freezing temperatures. It wasn't unusual to have snow on the ground for um, two months at a time. I'm talking winter here, really, really brutal, brutal weather. I mean, it was so ill-timed. Part of it was that delay of going back to England with the speed well, you know, that, that set them off a whole month behind because they had to go back and then retrace their steps up. So, so they land in New England in the middle of winter. They are totally ill-equipped. Frankly, what they did was um, they mostly lived on the boat, on the Mayflower. They didn't have a roof over their heads on the land except for a couple of Indian huts. And so a few men stayed in the deserted Indian village Um, And the rest lived on the boat that first year. More than half of them died that first winter from disease and starvation, or you can say from starvation and disease. I mean, a bad mix. In the uh, firsthand accounts, they said that it got so bad they were down to the ration was each person got a few kernels of corn a day. This horror story, it was absolutely inevitable they were going to die. All of them were going to die. And uh, a miracle happened and um, I believe in miracles, I've experienced miracles and they had a miracle and the miracle was in the person of a Indian by the name of Squanto. I am just going to tell you a tiny bit about his history because Squanto was a Pawtucket Indian. He had been captured by the English and sold in Spain as a slave, eventually made his way to England became kind of a free man in England, learned the English language, made a a real cultural adjustment in England. And then eventually he stole away and got on a boat back to New England because he wanted to get back to his family. Unfortunately, when he got back to his family, this village that the pilgrims had discovered in Plymouth had been his village. All of his people had died of disease, disease brought over from the New World, which is the story of 90% of the Native Americans died from diseases brought over from um, Europe. But anyways, they had no immunity to them. So it was very typical that American pioneers would discover vast areas of the American frontier that were devoid of Indians, and that's because they'd all died. I mean, America used to be populated with millions and millions of Indians, but when they came here, 90% of the population was dead. So Squanto was a survivor that he was the last Pawtucket Indian, the last one of his tribe in the world. And he had taken refuge with the Wampanoag Indians. And when the uh, pilgrims landed, the reason why the Wampanoag um, led by Chief Somerset were sympathetic to us, the pilgrims had brought women and children. And so Chief Semiset said, well, they're not coming here to kill us or to capture us because they brought women and children. It's not a war party not like the other Europeans that they had encountered. So we're going to leave them alone. And wait a minute, hey, Squanto can speak their language. Squanto, you go over and find out what they're up to, you know, and then come back and tell us. So that's what Squanto did. And had said, all right, sounds like they're peaceful, mean no harm, go back and find out more about them. Of course, what he found out was that they were starving to death. This isn't the middle of the winter. The winter of starvation and death he was like, "Whoa, <laughs> you people need a lot of help. So he taught them how to fish in Plymouth Harbor. He taught them first, where there were more stores from his village store, buried in the ground, stores of corn. He taught them how to hunt they didn 't know how to hunt. The woods were full of wild turkeys, full of deer, they had muskets they didn't have rifles, they had muskets, you know very cumbersome you know um, instruments. And um, he, he taught them how to hunt and he saved them from starvation. And then when the spring came, and this is very well documented, he taught them how to plant corn, which they didn't know anything about. That summer, they had hugely successful crops. Um, he showed them how to catch eel and herring and all kinds of local fish and how to dry them and store them. And when fall came along, Sometime in October, there's different dates on the exact day, but sometime in October, they declared a day of Thanksgiving. And a day of Thanksgiving consisted of several hours in the church praising God, singing hymns, a little preaching, reading the Bible, lots of praise of God. And then afterwards, they would have a feast, and they they declared a, a harvest festival, a day of Thanksgiving, part of their old world tradition. I just, I just want to say, how many of us give God gratitude for what we have? How often do we do that? Frankly, that should be daily, not weekly, not monthly, not yearly. Every day should be a day of Thanksgiving. I mean, not necessarily that we have to uh, spend that day in church or um, have a festival, but every day should be a day of gratitude and thanks to God, you know, for um, the life that we have, the breath that we breathe, our family, you know, the goodness of the world. So on that day, They declared this festival, and somehow Chief Samoset and the Indians got a win that the pilgrims were going to have this feast. They had good enough feelings about the uh, pilgrims. So this 50 pilgrims, 92 Wampanoag Indians went to the feast. To their great disappointment, when they got there, they didn't think the feast was uh, much good, wasn't very plentiful. So um, Samoset told six braves to go out go get some deer, go hunt some deer and bring them back. So um, there's so many deer in the woods, they were only gone a little while, came back with six deer. So now at the feast, they had lots and lots of deer meat, which made it um, a real feast, you know, (laughs) rather than just some corn mush and some birds, which is what the the pilgrims were serving. After the um, all morning long church, praise of God, then the feast, and then in the afternoon, the Indians said, let's play games. The Indians love to play games. They taught the pilgrims all kinds of Indian games. Like, for example, one of the most famous ones is lacrosse, which is a um, you know, fairly uh, well-known sport throughout the world. And they had, a, they had a day of praise of God first, feasting second, giving thanks to God for the good harvest that they weren't going to starve this winter they were going to make it through the winter and just fun with these people who they became like uh, good friends. The pilgrims actually uh, were united with the um, Wampanoag Indians and um, helped them in some of their battles with some hostile other tribes and things like that. I mean, they literally went to war with them and things. So the um, European Indian relations, beginning with the pilgrims, uh, went along great. Later on, not the pilgrims, other Europeans um, treated the Indians terribly. And, um, you know, there were massacres of the Indians and things like that. But anyways, that's another story I don't want to get into. The pilgrims, when they came to the Americas, they formed um, a simple democracy. They did this on the ship coming over on the Mayflower. It's called the Mayflower Compact. They wrote up a contract. You know, we're going to decide everything in a democratic way. And their tradition was the beginning of American democracy. The story of the pilgrims so permeates the founding of America that the founding fathers, and I'm talking about like um, you know, 150 years later, you know, like 1775, 1776, looked back at that 1620 Mayflower complex and said, yeah, that's what we want. we want. We want a democracy where each person has a vote and decides you know, what kind of government we're going to have and make, make all the important decisions. One of the other legacies was very, very early, and this was controversial in the American colonies, we do not want to have a state church, and that's written into the American Constitution, separation of church and state. What it means is that no denomination can dominate or set the rules by everyone. It also means that we have basically anarchy in the religious communities in the United States. People say that in the United States, there's 30,000 denominations. Well, there's actually hundreds of thousands of independent churches that don't belong to anybody. I mean, any, in the United States, anyone can go start a church. Anyone to, can declare themselves a pastor. People ordain themselves say I'm an ordained pastor now. And I'm, I'm starting a church, you know, and like they're under no authority. They're under no rules, no regulations. So it's, it's pure anarchy in the United States. And um, having spent time in um, Kenya, I understand it's pretty much the same situation there. It's just People just start up churches, whatever, and, uh, you know, some of them are well-meaning and some of them maybe not so well-meaning, but whatever. But our hope, as the pilgrims absolutely believed, that they were guided by the Holy Spirit. I mentioned earlier that they had to leave their pastor back in Han. So when they came over, they had no religious leader. It was a community of believers And they got along quite well. They practiced their faith to the best of their ability, including it was their hope to evangelize the Indians, which they did to some degree. They um, wanted to spread the Christian faith um, into the the new world that they had come into. And they attempted to do it by um, showing peace and kindness and brotherhood and love. Um, They didn't do it with the gun. You know, they didn't enslave anybody or try and force anybody into submission into you know the church they're a real model for the United founding in the United States and, um, and in my opinion a model for uh, mission work and evangelism in the rest of the world so I am a great admirer of what we refer to as our Pilgrim Fathers for the Plymouth Colony and for the Wampanoag Indians who um, are the reason why they survived <laughs>
1: And so a very happy Thanksgiving to all of our American friends and anyone else who celebrates this holiday. And thanks so much to Howard Storm for sharing with us the story of the founding fathers, the brave pilgrims who ventured out by faith across uncharted seas. God bless you. Bye-bye.
0: Orange seas, to their heart's desire, Faith set the same. while the beaten men walk with fearful hearts along life's beaten trail.